and the shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse, a branch that will sprout from his roots. The Lord's spirit will rest upon him, and a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in fearing the Lord. He won't judge by appearances, nor decide by hearsay. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the lands. He will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth, and by the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his hips, and faithfulness the belt around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the younger goat. A calf and a young lion will feed together, and a little child will lead them. <clears throat> the cow and the bell will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw just like an ox. A nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. They won't harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. The earth will surely be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And just as the water covers the sea, on that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations will seek him out, and his dwelling will be glorious. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks, Gary. So in thinking about peace this week, I've tried to reconstruct the exact quote or really just the context or purpose of the story at all, um, and haven't been able to do it very well. Uh, that's always a good prelude when you're about to tell a story in front of people. Uh, but years ago when I first moved to Durham, my uh, I had a roommate uh, before I found my permanent roommate. And um, he was a Div School student. Uh, and he had a class with the legendary Duke Divinity Professor Stanley Hauerwas, who's, who's very well known. He's like a firebrand pacifist, Christian ethicist. And the only thing I can remember about that Keystone class that he would go to and then come home every day and talk about, um, he told some stem-winding illustration about um, how Stanley, and the, here, there's a picture of Stanley, I think, Elizabeth. Um, Stanley was named the, the top theologian, the top American theologian by Time Magazine, to which he said, best is not a theological category, okay? Um, so that's Stanley. Scott would come home and talk about Stanley, and he'd always tell this story about how Stanley talked about peace, and he's a pacifist, very, he talks about peace quite a bit, but he talked about this big illustration about the mere existence of the Duke Lemur Center is itself a witness to peace. And so Stanley would say, and, and we would say this years and years around that house, and now we still say it around our house, with any mention of lemurs, and Titus once had a, uh, a stuffed ringtail lemur that we named Stanley, and you always have to say with the Stanley impression, that's peace, <laughs> something like that. So it seems that the prophet Isaiah is doing something like this too in the scripture that Gary just read. He is imagining peace, peace, right? And appealing to the created world and pointing towards a future that's coming. That's peace. It's, you know, it's what he says is that's peace, but actual peace uh, might be one of the most difficult things for us to really imagine. 
in our world that is full of war and violence, division and polarities and radical inequalities and growing disparities. We're talking about peace, right? It's into this territory, though, that the prophet speaks um, really poignantly. It's into the space of exile and liminality and prophetic outrage at injustice. Jerusalem had just been destroyed. Assyria is riding high and everything is kind of up for grabs. All of God's people's plans are kind of in the wind. Going back a few chapters prior, there's an image of an axe. It's a prophetic image. Um, there's always a little bit of ambiguity as to whether, as uh, what the Lord is chopping down with that axe, whether it's chopping Israel or Assyria or who's doing the chopping or who's taking turns. Uh, all we know is that there was once a vision and there was once a hope for flourishing and triumph and now there's just a stump of what will no longer ever be again. It's pretty hopeless. Where there was once a people who'd number greater than the sands, than the grains of sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky, remember that's what Abraham was told? Now there was just a remnant. Where there was once a people gathered by God, whose main distinctive was the covenant faithfulness of the covenant faithfulness of God, now there was just another nation trying to do whatever they had to do to keep existing. Swinging from impulses of fear and self-protection on the one end to lavish and unjust living, which trampled the poor in the other. Um, and it seems like these chickens have come back to roost and an ax has been laid to all of it. So that's the context that Isaiah writes and speaks out of. And Isaiah speaks as a, as a prophet. Prophets are filled with the Spirit. We, we, we sang these Spirit songs this morning. Prophets are filled with the Spirit, and they speak for the Lord to God's people. Notice those two words always have to be in the prophetic job description, God and people. Abraham Joshua Heschel reminds us that a prophet's true greatness is the ability to hold God and humanity in a single thought. God and people. Earlier this year, we, we explored the parable of the uh, persistent widow and the unjust judge, and that was the working definition for ministry. It's just God and people. Again, just is a lot of work there, right? Uh, that, that parable talked about how the judge had no fear of God and no concern for people, but he listened to the woman's ministry of needling kind of out of necessity. A prophet has these Venn diagram thoughts for the future. Worship and faithfulness to God and how it hits the ground in real lives and communities and how life with neighbors must always be an outpouring of God's mercy and grace towards everything that is not God. Isaiah stands right in the middle of Israel. He's not throwing rocks from the outside or heaping criticism. He is someone deeply invested in Israel's future. Remember that the next time you hear someone proclaiming to be a prophet or standing in a prophetic role, maybe even yourself. You have to be invested in the project. Jesus reminds us as the one fulfilling all the laws and the prophets, that prophets aren't typically well-received in their own land. 
They're often killed for their message. So somehow, these prophets are both protesters and they're patriots. A prophet is hardly ever just one or the other. Their, their protest is born out of their deep love for their people and the Lord and their deep implication in the people's sin and their deep vision for renewal in the Lord. But they are patriotic. They're loyal, uh, but they're never nationalistic. It's not, a, it's not something that it excludes or acts out of fear or places a beloved nation above reproach. Their country or their group is never their true love. That would be idolatry. I think this sort of rubric would really thin our field of people speaking prophetically. <laughs> uh, it also helps to clarify and to calibrate our ability to hold these two things together. Every criticism is not treason. Every show of pride is not jingoism. We need prophets to show us how to hold these things together. Otherwise, we're just going to rely on partisan homers and marketing spin doctors to do this kind of work. We have examples of this. This isn't just like before Christ times. I think of a very popular one, actually, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is a great example of an American prophet. He was killed for his message for an integrated and beloved community, fleshing out a lot of the values and characteristics that our country claims to expose, espouse, uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness for all. But he was also, in his time, considered a traitor because he was critical of this country critical of the way we live up to our ideals, our involvement in the Vietnam War and nuclear escalation and treatment of women and rampant consumerism and the ability to care for our own poor, let alone our neighbors around the world. Listen to this quote. This, this comes from 1967. So it's exactly a year um, in a church setting uh, in a sermon. Uh, a year before he was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel. He says, when machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. Hmm. That was out of the pulpit, too. So enter Isaiah 11 in this prophetic spirit of Advent, this spirit of arrival and newness of, of God's presence with us. A shoot will grow up out of this axed down stump of Jesse. A branch will, will sprout his roots. This is, this is a rose growing out of the concrete, right? This is a way where there is no way. But this would be no generic hope. It's a, it's a hope in a, in a person. Someone who would lead God's people back to God. The Lord's spirit will rest upon him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of planning and strength. A spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. This is not just an excited spirit who puts the paddles to a lifeless body and jump starts with electricity, but it is a wise and a patient spirit. 
It is a spirit that rests and resides on this Messiah, not flitting or fleeting. It is a spirit of understanding and planning, of considering what God wants, has always wanted for this world and how to make it happen. This, after all, is the spirit who is there at the building. The spirit who is there at the, the drafting of the blueprints. It's the spirit who was there when the footers were being poured and the foundations were being established. It was the spirit who was there before creation of a good and abundant and worship-filled world in the good and abundant and love-filled triune community life of God. So no wonder the needy will be judged with righteousness and those who suffer in the land will be decided for with equity. Righteousness and equity are stock in trade for someone filled with this kind of spirit. Righteousness and faithfulness encircle a spirit leader like a belt. They hold someone with this spirit together in steadfastness and righteousness. So you see this kind of shape developing of what this person might be like. It's, there's some similarities to the contours of our mission statement here at Oak, uh, which also comes out of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, hope, healing, and hospitality. Those are kind of the handles with which we can hold this huge message that's too big for us. Maybe the strangest and most inspiring part is the, the healing and the hospitality. It spills out of this spirit-filled Christ into creation. And in Isaiah 11, creates these zoological collages is what's happening. It blows my mind, and frankly, as a parent, it makes me a little nervous when we read these images of a wolf and a lamb and a leopard and a goat and a calf and a lion cub. We can talk to Jess and Andy about what it's like to raise kids on a farm. It makes me all a little nervous. Um, but I love, I love this image, and we're looking at an image made by a Quaker minister, Edward Hicks. Um, the, the interesting thing about the, it's called the Peaceable Kingdom, and I really, I really love this image. Um, the kind of strange thing about him, he was an amateur painter. He painted 62 versions of this picture. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, that's a little... A little overkill, but he. This was like I imagine this burned into his his mind and subconscious when he closed his eyes. This is what he was seeing, and this is what he was oriented to. Uh, for anyone who's out there, I'd love a PhD to be done contrasting the works of Edward Hicks to the works of Thomas Kincaid. Uh, I would love that so much. A couple observations for this image. This peaceful kingdom. How in the world can this happen? How can predator and prey be together? This is not particularly safe for the prey. This is not sustainable. This is not a good plan. Generations of fear have been wisely bred into the lamb to escape this exact scenario. <laughs> For this to happen, the lamb's fear needs to be laid aside. I don't know how to do this. I don't ha know how to ask the lamb to do this. But this is the vision. These prophetic visions should always be a little frustrating like this. And the predator 
is also threatened and challenged to take up a whole new way of life, to take up a whole new cuisine, to have a whole new outlook. Whereas most of the lion's life was spent stalking its prey, now it's spent asking the ox for tips on where the best straw grows or something. Can you imagine a lion's teeth being filed down flat because they no longer need to hunt? They don't need to rip flesh anymore. My imagination is not very like acute for this. Like, the only way I can imagine this it involves a lot of tranquilizer for this to happen well, right? But, but we're being asked, can you imagine this? Can you imagine this scene happening? Not in some far off place, but in our world. I don't think the prophet is giving us though like five easy steps to building the kingdom of God. <laughs> I think we're getting a a rich description of the beautiful future of peace that is so impossible and unthinkable and crazy, we often stop trying to even picture it. Sit down and try to parse through some of the logistics of how all this could work. That's, That's the homework for this week, how this scene could really happen. Pretty fast, we're gonna we're gonna learn that we need some sort of intervention. We don't have enough. No amount of goodwill, or good ideas, or good tech, or good governing, or good resources could create or secure this future. But we don't get rid of it. We we instead we embrace it as true, because it could truly change the world. It might even change us. This is about as impractical of a, of a prophetic exhortation as we could get. Like maybe as impractical as a shoot growing from a stump. This is also not a good way to grow trees. <laughs> it's, it's impractical of Isaiah 55. It says, come all you who are thirsty. Come you who do not have money. Come buy and eat. What? Or that God's return will cause the exiles to go out in joy and be led forth again in peace so that the mountains and hills burst into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands. What is Isaiah on about? It's impractical. But it is oh so good and true and beautiful. It feels significant though to, 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 to put a little caveat note. This coming peaceable kingdom, it's arriving, but it is not here in full yet. So many of the mistakes that get made, pretty much the whole game of discipleship is not just realizing where we are in God's good, but very deeply wounded creation, but also when we are. The already, but definitely not yet. That's where we're at. So God's peaceable kingdom, it it grows up from the ground. It's a grassroots affair, but it also comes down to us as a gift that we must receive and that we can't make happen for ourselves. This should be a good reminder for us when we are well-meaning, but we might encourage uh, potentially abusive eagerness to unite predator and prey because we want this so badly. No matter how much I want this scene to be true, if I let 
our neighborhood fox that I see hang out with my 12 chickens, this peaceable kingdom will not happen, I assure you. I have to know and I have to take seriously as a steward of a dozen hens that this would be very irresponsible care, a recipe for disaster, and it would not end well for anyone but the fox. In similar ways, we have to take pause before we like rush towards this sort of cosmic reconciliation to think that it could be tidy, that it could be easy, that it could even be attainable for us right now. Like we think that just getting people back in the room together after abuse or that the presence of, of, of someone who has been a predator with their prey in the neighborhood, even predatory developers, could naturally just shift towards healthy relationships. I don't think so. Um, Jesus uses animal imagery also in his warning to his friends when he says you have to be wise as serpents, as snakes, and innocent as doves. We move towards this peaceable kingdom, a kingdom that is able for peace, not by forcing it, not by, by shutting our eyes and hoping for it to happen, but by remaining tender by embracing boundaries, by always imagining beyond boundaries, but knowing sometimes these boundaries are the best thing. I think being something like Edward Hicks and just having this image burned on our mind, even when we open our eyes and when we look around, it seems impossible and nothing like it, is, is the sort of uh, calling in existence we're, we're to be aimed at. As I read this, I see children playing over snake holes, <laughs> and it seems so stinking reckless. Like almost reckless enough to just ignore the whole thing, right? Again, this is a, a vision for the renewal of God's people, and it ironically involves radical unprotectiveness. It is, it is connected also closely with the reversal of the curse of Adam and Eve's fall. There was a snake. Uh, <laughs> there's a snake here. Uh, all of this is, all these image, images are clashing and they are coming to fruition and coming full circle. Whereas Adam and Eve colluded with a serpent to exploit power and knowledge and put distance between God and humanity, this spirit king will somehow defang and dismantle and de-escalate this antagonism. Even in the most, even so the most iconic and dramatic rivalry becomes a play date. It's, it's very wild stuff. Can we begin to imagine this? In the final part of our passage, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations will seek him out and his dwelling will be glorious. Pay attention to the fact that this root and shoot goes back and reclaims God's people even before David. While the promise would be that a savior would come from David's lineage, this reclamation project reaches back even further before David's sin and bloodshed to the original intent, and then it reaches forward to this inclusive, neighbor-loving, hospitable future. The nations, the nations, us, 
included in God's promises, us. We'll seek him out, and his dwelling will be glorious. Paul, um, the Apostle Paul, has, has a passage at the end of, uh, of his letter to the Romans that feels like it's treading in some of this territory, but Paul maybe not have uh, had been as much of an animal person as Isaiah, right? In, in Romans 15, that's probably an understatement, right? <laughs> um, in, in Romans 15, Paul writes, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. And then later, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can just you can see in those words, all those buzzwords, how hope-filled, how peaceable the work of the Spirit is in Jesus, the root of Jesse. Overflowing with hope by the Spirit, carving out a new and surprising future of peace. Not something sweet and saccharine, but actually wild and subversive, where all of our assumptions about protection and violence and power are flipped on their heads so that we can learn to be peaceable. We've been given this same spirit, the spirit that's still in this work, this lifelong and eternity-long task. Can we imagine that? The spirit is at work in us. Spirit is making us, in the words of St. Francis's prayer, instruments of peace. It's a spirit that overflows this peace into the world with joy and hope. This verse almost reads like one of those AI generators that you would ask to write a Advent verse written by the Apostle Paul. This is, this is what it, it would probably say. In this Advent season, we learn how to wait. But peace can't wait. This waiting isn't passive. It's not tuning out or turning off. This waiting, this expectation, this anticipation, is, it's fierce, it's hungry, it's leaning into this impossible vision for the future, and it's begging God to fit us into this way of being. That might mean that we need courage. It might mean that we need healing. It might mean that we need space. It might mean that we need our own teeth filed down so that we can't hurt other people. In this time of predators and prey and safety, unsafety and trauma, in this time, not because we are unwise or unaware, but because God is coming to us and making things new. That's why we're involved in this work and this imagining and having it burnt into our retinas. This arrival, ironically, it happens like a birth. It happens slow and steady and then all at once. <laughs> It is so unbearable in the waiting, but when it comes, it is glorious. So let us welcome this Prince of Peace. Let us welcome this Jesus into our lives, into our world, into our community, into our neighborhood. And friends, let's, let's learn, even in this time that it's pretty 
dark in a lot of ways. Even with God, it's pretty dark. Certainly without God, it is. But it won't always be. Let us learn how to live in this peaceable kingdom. Will you all pray with me? God, we give you thanks for a vision so strange and beautiful and impossible that we couldn't have made it up on our own and we can't achieve it uh, without you. Uh, Just this week, in small ways, in small and bearable increments, uh, fit us for this peaceable kingdom. where we can be, help us be instruments of peace. Instruments to bring about uh, flourishing and healing and protection, uh, especially for those uh, who are not flourishing, who are hurting and who are vulnerable. Uh, Lord, thanks uh, for this grand project that we join you in. Um, Thanks for coming before us and behind us and around us in it. Uh, and giving us everything that we need. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.